Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Steve Miller's on the show today. Yep, that's Steve Miller, okay? Steve Miller. Fly like an eagle, Steve Miller. The Joker, Steve Miller. Come on. Big old jet airliner, Steve Miller. It just came up. He's releasing a previously unreleased live concert. It was a concert on the actual uh, Fly Like an Eagle tour, and the full concert will also be on Amazon Prime. It's a weird bit of nostalgia because it's shot on old equipment, and as Steve will tell you, they, you know, he's got all this stuff in his warehouse, and he wasn't going to release it necessarily, but he found some like massive master recording of the same show, perfect kind of uh, soundboard, 32-track, 16-track, whatever the hell it is recording of the thing and he synced it up and it's definitely a time capsule and i think we all forget just how fucking huge steve miller was so i'm like of course i'll talk to steve miller because he was around man interesting story he was around he goes way back and uh it was uh it was exciting actually and uh, i'm glad we spoke so that's happening soon Another thing I want to promote, if I can, is that me and my buddy Dean Del Rey have joined forces and we've created this podcast called Dark Fonzie. And I will explain, if you listen to it, it'll we'll, we explain the name. But it's basically a, a very relevant uh, podcast. It's two middle-aged white dudes, two middle-aged straight white dudes with no children <laughs> talking. How, I mean, come on, this is cutting edge stuff. Let me say it again. Two middle-aged white dudes with no children, straight white dudes, talking. So, I mean, you don't want to miss out on that. I'm I'm, not, I'm underselling it. Dean is a, a, a dear friend, and it was just something we came up with months ago when we were touring. And we were doing live Instagram, uh, Instagram lives, and, and, and it sort of evolved the dark Fonzie name came out of one of those in the car. And we have these car conversations. I mean, Dean is much more of a focused nerd than I am when it comes to, you know, like uh, pants, boots, watches, cars, mid-century houses, <laughs> eyeglasses. I, you know, I don't, I can't, he's all in with all of it. But, uh, but I find him entertaining and, and we're close and we, he opens for me a lot on the road. So, and he's very easy to travel with because we're buddies and, we, we like to eat the same things. And, you know, I always learn some stuff from Dean. 
uh, about things that I don't think I need, and then I buy them. <laughs> so, so that's a uh, that's Dark Fonzie. I guess you can get it certainly on iTunes and where you get podcasts. Episode one is out there, and uh, I think it was good. I just let him deal with it. He came over here. We talked. I said, all right, knock yourself out. So I got to tell you, man, I did comedy the other night for the first time in over a year on Friday night. I did my first spot in the original room at the comedy store. I had not been to the comedy store in over a year. I did not do any other shows over a year, no, a year without standup, no Zoom shows, no outdoor shows. I refused to, uh, to do that to myself. I felt I'd work too hard. And even though it was adaptive, I didn't feel the need to do that. I didn't feel the need to struggle. I didn't feel the need to entertain in a parking lot or with masks or, you know, Zooming. I didn't need it. I didn't want to because I knew it would be stressful and would not be good. The comedy store is a comedy club. It's the comedy club. It's, it's so itself. I mean, just driving over, that was a nice, I, I got a little dressed up, put on a nice jacket that I haven't worn in a long, ever maybe the first night. And I didn't really know what I was going to do, but for the week leading up to it, after I decided that maybe I would not need to do comedy anymore, all of a sudden the idea that the store was open, I was sort of like, go out there, man. This is, I, it wasn't that I was excited or maybe I'm not admitting I was excited. I can't tell you really, but I was definitely not afraid. And, you know, I did the tonight show last week. So I had some stuff in my head got that I worked through with the segment producer over there. And I'm like, all right, that's shaped up. I mean, if worse comes to worse, I can just run that stuff or whatever. Just go. So, man, I got to the store and it was so I, I, it was moving. First of all, they built an entire fucking hotel and apartment complex across the street in a year. Like I got there and there's a whole new building right across the street. Somebody was, was, didn't take any time off. It's this huge, they were building it. They were kind of building it a year ago, but now it's all built. But the comedy store remains the same. It remains the same. The pictures in the hallways remain the same. Then the walls, the writing on the building, the neon. There's a new neon for Jeff, uh, the piano player for years who passed away during COVID. They were checking people comics at the back door to see if they were vaxxed and if they weren't they would give them a quick test audience members needed to show proof of vax or that they were tested negative and uh, it was just wild i mean obviously it was quiet it was different uh i, I guess it's like 30 percent capacity i don't even know how many people were there but they were small spaced out crowds in both the main room and the OR. And when I got there, I realized like, oh, this doesn't fucking matter. We're all trying to get, we're, we're all doing something new. People are, audiences are new. They're coming and they, they, it's been a year for them too. And they know we haven't, we've all been in the same place. We all took a year off to be terrified and wonder if the world was ending or whether or not we would die and try to maintain our sanity. I just didn't know what would happen, but the great thing was I waited for the comedy club because look, man, I, all of us comics have done shows for two people, three people, nine people, 12 people. Look, the difference between 20 people in a comedy club spread out and a fucking parking lot is massive. The context holds the place is, is, it's, is grounded and, and reliable as the fucking, you know, Mount Sinai, for fuck's sake. 
It's the Godhead. It's Mecca. It stays. It remains the same. And just walking those halls, I saw Neil Brennan, and he's like, how you doing? I'm like, I don't know, man. I haven't seen these guys in a year. And I like it almost felt like crying. It almost felt like Neil would have been the right guy to cry to. He could have handled it. But we were both like, I don't know. And it was just that same thing. You know, I was happy with doing nothing or not. I mean, obviously, I've been working the whole time, but I was happy with the idea that maybe I didn't need, I didn't need to do stand-up anymore. And the benefit... The only benefit of the of the lockdown was that no one was doing it. And I think once I started to see people scheduling shit, that part of me that is driven by spite and just that competitive nature of staying in the fucking game woke up. Didn't take much. It was it was lightly sleeping, but right away I was like, "Fuck, he's going out. I got to figure out what I got. I got to get on this." But it was so great, man. I saw uh, Esther Pavitsky, Steve Renazizi, who else was around? Neil was there. But that first set was just great. It was just, it was very comfortable. I mean, like I said, there's not big crowds there, but we're all fucking excited in some way to see what happens because it's been so long. And I kind of got through some stuff. I found some new stuff. I might have found some themes to start working on to build an hour with. And I just left feeling like, all right, that guy's awake. The guy that lives on stage is awake. He's ready to go. And the fucking notebook comes out. I'm putting things together in my head. I've got pieces of paper all over the place. It took a day, a fucking day. And then went back Saturday night, saw Jeselnik. We had some laughs in back and uh, Kevin Nealon, Spade was there. And uh, Esther again and Maz Jabrani. Luke Schwartz, who opens for me sometimes, working the door. And I just riffing, man, getting on it. Some dark stuff, some stuff evolving already. But it was just to feel the chops come back. I've been doing this more than half my fucking life. What was I thinking? I don't think in the last week, I didn't think, like for a while there, I was like, I don't know if I can do it anymore. But the last week leading up to this, I'm like, of course I can do it. Why am I, what? There's no reason to freak yourself out, bro. So I'll call myself bro sometimes. I mean, you, you live and sleep and eat this shit, man. It's not even like riding a bike. It's just who you are, stupid. It's who you are. It's nice. It was nice. It was fun. And I'm ready. Tickets are on sale for my Dynasty typewriter shows. Here in Los Angeles for July, I'll be doing a, a, a month of Thursdays there. Hopefully by that time, I'll have some through lines and we can riff out some stuff. Maybe help me build that hour. I'm going to be, I'm going to regret not hitting the road sooner. I just feel it. Whatever. It doesn't matter, man. I woke up the comic and he was barely asleep. Folks, Steve Miller, Breaking Ground, the concert album from August Third, 1977 comes out this Friday, May 14th, and the accompanying live concert film featuring the full performance will be available to stream on the Coda Collection on Amazon Prime Video. Steve Miller's songs are wired into certainly people my age's brains. Junior high, baby. Junior high. Fly like an eagle. To the sea. Come on. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Come on.
time to appreciate or reappreciate Steve Miller. Uh, this is me talking to Steve Miller. Right now. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts. Now. How are you, Steve Miller? Hey, I'm I'm really good, Mark. How are you today? I'm good, man. Uh where you you got a little office going there? Is that your house? Uh yeah, I'm in my house, I'm in my attic. This is where uh this is my room where I do my artwork. So I'm oh, like, that's great uh, up here. This is where I hang out. And you got a nice cigar going indoors. It's nice to see someone smoking a cigar indoors. Yeah, well, that's the way I live my life, Mark. You know, it's like <laughs> that's why I work so hard, so I can smoke cigars where I fucking want to. What kind are you smoking? I gave them up. I don't know. It's it's a it's a nice strong cigar, a mystery cigar out of the box. Sure, I take the, the labels off, so I don't know. You know it's weird, man. I was I watched uh, I watched the uh, the the new uh, the the release of the 1977 concert. I watched it last night, and it was kind of a journey back because uh, I don't know who shot that thing or what they shot it on, but uh, I don't know either. I haven't got a clue. Well, where, now where'd you find this? What's the story behind pulling this thing out of the vault? <laughs> well, I wrote, actually, yeah, I have a vault. I know. I believe <laughs> yeah. you. It's a big warehouse that I built years ago. And, uh, um, you know, like most people, you know, like I did stuff and I'd throw things in there and figured later I'd go through it all. Of course, I never wanted to go through any of it. And I, I had a, a really good uh, pal of mine go through and listen to stuff and uh, look at things. And he would he spent a year and a half doing it there was 30 years of stuff we we did this started this 15 years ago something wow anyway he, he found this concert and the copy i had was uh, on some kind of cassette and it looked horrible it was all purple and pink hmm. and the sound it sounded like the guitars were coming through a telephone or something and i just looked at it and said man you know we can't use that get out of here you know yeah. next 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 yeah and I actually rejected anything and everything found in the vault. And then my wife, Janice, <laughs> who's the archivist, she went back and found it and she brought it to me and she showed it to me. And I said, honey, you know, this really, it sounds so bad. I can't release that. I'm yeah. not going to release that. And she said, well, we found out that you have a, you made a multi-track recording of it. So it turns out I did a 24 track recording that night that I didn't really know. We finally got, you know, everything indexed where we started going through tape. So I said, 
okay, well, let's uh, let's mix that and see what it sounds like. And God, it was just this, what I feel is just a great performance of that band. So then I had to like figure out how to try to make this really terrible video, you know, watchable, you know? Yeah. So we, um, you know, we hired some guy in Scotland and he started like schmoozing it and somebody else started schmoozing a little bit and finally got, got to the point where you could kind of see what it was. And then um, (laughs) I like the, uh, the camera effects, you know, the, 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 the single switch camera effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so the the thing that got me was when Janice finally said to me, she said, sweetheart, it's just a really nice look back at the goofy 70s. It's the 70s, you know? Yeah. And I went, well, yeah, I guess it is. But uh, I mean, you know, we have this unbelievable laser show going on and it looks like, you know, like big blanks (laughs) of white stuff going across. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, people are smoking in the audience and stuff like that. You know, it's like pretty funny show. Well, the effects are the effects are very dated, but it does look like an artifact of that time. I mean, you can tell it was shot on that time. And then you did a couple of like sort of sarcastic disclaimers at the beginning that you must have just put on there. Yeah, (laughs) right. Well, the whole thing sort of looks to me like a late night sex messaging ad from the 80s. Sure. It's got that bright yellow color and yeah, yeah. all that stuff. So we had, you know, we just put it together. And and at the end of the day, I what I really enjoyed about it was it captured that band. You know, the, it was a, a really exciting time. And this was a time when we didn't, like, nobody was videotaping us. We weren't on television. I mean, there was nothing going on. And uh, so to find, a, uh, you know, something where you could just actually see what that band was like. And I just liked the energy of it. I thought we were just unconscious. Nobody was thinking or stinking. No, it was great, man. And I mean, what that was, the, you were touring Fly Like an Eagle? Yeah, that was the Fly Like an Eagle tour. You know, because I, I was like, you know, look, man, I, I'm, I'm 57. So I grew up, I was in like, I guess, junior high probably, uh, you know, or maybe the first year of high school when that album came out. It was a huge record. There just seemed to be, you know, You Dominated and Heart and Bob Seger. You know, there was just these, these bands that are forever part of my brain. Uh, but like what I didn't really realize until I, just last night watching that concert. So you're, I guess it's, who is it? Uh, is it um, uh, Norton Buffalo on the other harmonica? Yeah. And so it's you two. You come out there with those harps, and I hear the I hear the rhythm harp, and then all of a sudden I hear you blast, you know, blasting through with your your chops, and I was like, holy fuck! You know, this this is who that guy is. This is what he wanted to be. He's a blues <laughs> guy. Like I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the it, uh, I I love blues, and and I played a long time in Chicago, and I grew up in Texas. Well, and- the, but like you can like those heartbreaks, you know, you sound like uh, you know Blind Al Wilson or or, or uh, you know Little Walter, you know Butterfield. I mean, you got the licks. I mean, you you obviously put the work in. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I I've been playing harmonica in t- from Texas since I was like. 14 years old. So Where do you I, come I, from originally? Well, I was born in Milwaukee, but yeah. I moved to Texas when I was five. So I grew up in Dallas and Dallas was completely segregated. Uh, it was a really strange world for a young kid to walk into. Yeah. 
but there were black radio stations, there were black blues programs, there were R&B shows, there were all, all this, this black culture, there was Mexican culture, there was country music, there was all that stuff. So um, I just grew up loving blues. I grew up in a house where a lot of blues and gospel music was played. And Why is that? Your folks are musicians? Yeah, I had I had a whole my mother's side of the family were all musicians and they were they were Scottish and they played violin, they played hot jazz violin and guitar and banjo and stuff like that. And uh, when the depression came, they all stopped playing and went to medical school and became doctors. Huh. And uh, my uncle Dale gave me my first guitar when I was five. Yeah. And uh Les Paul was my godfather. He taught Wait me my first chords on, the, Come on, on the guitar. How the hell was Les Paul your godfather? That wasn't in Texas. He was in New Jersey, wasn't he? He was in Milwaukee. He was in Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the. You want me to tell you the story? It's a. It's kind of a, it goes like this. So we we are living in Milwaukee. Yeah, it's Milwaukee. Like the late forties. It's right after World War Two. It's still a popping city then. Yeah. Milwaukee was a place where what happened was people would come and play there after they played in Chicago. Right, right. You know, okay, they play sure, Chicago and then they sure. jump over to Milwaukee yeah. 90 miles away and play a gig there. Got it. Les Paul was from Wisconsin. He was getting ready to do a radio show in New York with Mary Ford and he wanted to rehearse. Uh-huh. So he brought Mary Ford and his trio and they came to Milwaukee and stayed there for six weeks and played a dinner club called Jimmy Fazio's Supper Club. And that sounds like an on the level business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, the mob in Milwaukee was not nice. You know, and, and, and but it was like second rate to the Chicago mob, which was the big mob. You know. They were connected. But, it was a satellite uh, mob. Jimmy Fazio was a great guy. He ran a nice supper club. And, sure. and my, my father was a pathologist. He was a doctor. Yeah. But he loved music. My mother sang like Ella Fitzgerald and was incredible. And he had a wire recorder, you know, a wire recorder. And he was making, he would record everything with that. And what's a wire uh, recorder? A wire recorder is what was before a tape recorder. And it was like a spool of copper wire. It was like a fishing reel. And it was horrible because it was constantly coming off the reel. It was just a complete mess. And it's how we recorded. Well, after World War II, the Germans developed tape recording technology. Mm. We got it in a company named Magnacorder in like 1949, started making tape recorders. Sure. My old man got one and the tape recorder. This was like the professional tape recorder, the best tape recorder there was. Right. And uh, Les Paul shows up about three minutes from where we live playing in this, this funky club. My dad goes over to see him and says, Hey, I, I have a tape recorder. Can I come over and record you? And Les said, yeah. So every night, my dad would go over and record Les Paul. And he's a techie. Now, Les Paul's like an early innovator techie guy yeah les paul invented the multi-track tape recording system so this was right down his alley right so for him to meet but more than being just a techie he was a genius he invented a lot of great stuff Mm -hmm. but my old man was right in his league and so 
he had a shop down in the basement of this little funky townhouse we lived in, and he was working with plexiglass, and he was building television sets. And this is 1949, so Les Paul comes over. They became instant best buddies. <laughs> they're making guitar picks. They're making clear plexiglass pick guards. Pop's playing him the tapes of the show, and he's taking me every night to see Les Paul. So now I got Les Paul and Mary Ford hanging out in my house, and I'm four and a half years old. And my uncle Dale just gave me a guitar, his guitar. I've got this little Gibson guitar. Yeah. And uh, so uh, Les and Mary got married in Milwaukee. My mom and dad were the best men and women at their wedding. Wow. And uh, uh, Les became my godfather. And uh, I was in love with Mary Ford. I thought she was the most beautiful thing in the world. But the real important part of this story was I realized that Les Paul was like speeding the tape up. Uh-huh. and slowing it down. And I knew that Mary Ford was singing harmony with herself. Yeah. They went on to New York, had their radio show. Then they had that quirky television show where they were on three times a day for 15 minutes, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, huh. which is a really cool show. And I watched them and they would, they would put out a single and they had a, a string of like 25 top 10 singles. They yeah. Just, huge. They were just totally in that, that business, you know, and they put out a single and we'd get a pack of a uh, hundred postcards all written in different handwriting by Les Paul and Mary Ford, you know, backwards, forwards, fancy, neat, whatever, requesting their songs at the radio station in Milwaukee. So by the time they had been in town, he'd become my godfather and left. I knew what multi-track recording was. I knew what an electric guitar was. I knew you had to promote singles. And I knew he was the funniest, coolest guy I'd ever saw. So I was on my way. Wow. So he, at that time, that they hadn't, they, he must have, what, he had a, proto, a prototype for the electric guitar. What was he playing? Cause, you know, he was playing this big kind of blonde guitar. I think it was the log, the one that was like right, a, the, the original where, log, the one that Gibson turned down yeah, originally. Right. And uh, he had, uh, um, you know, I didn't know he was inventing anything. I just went, boy, electric guitar. This is as cool as it can be. And sure. he was less was so great. He was such a great guitar player. He was so funny another hotshot guitar player would come in to see him and he'd immediately pull out a handkerchief and put it over his left hand and continue to play, you know, so they (laughs) couldn't steal his licks. He was, he was just like, he's always pulling that kind of stuff, you know? So I was in love with him and and he was, he was the greatest. And then we moved to Texas and uh, I followed him. Did you learn? Did you learn some guitar? Did he, did he teach you some tricks? He taught me my first three chords and, uh, They were so easy. I could teach anybody to play those three chords. It's, it's very, very easy. And he just made it all seem like fun. He was, he was really great. That's great. And um, then we moved to Texas and, and all of a sudden I'm in this world where there's just music everywhere. My pops recording sister Rosetta Thorpe down at the Baptist church. And you saw her Walker is Yeah. And T-Bone Walker is like a family friend who comes by and plays at the house. And I've got all these recordings of him. And that's where I learned my stuff. Right. Steve, isn't it true? I mean, you know, it's all T-Bone Walker. All the guitar yeah. licks are T-Bone Everything. Walker. Like and, it all and, goes it all goes back to him. It's crazy. And I'm nine years old and sitting right next to him going, hey, T-Bone, how do you do this? How do you do it? He showed me how to play the guitar behind my head and do the splits <laughs> when I was nine. Yeah. And he was the nicest, 
guy who was a real gentleman and he was phenomenal. And I have, have recordings done at our house that are just unbelievable that we found in the vault. Why don't you put, <laughs> why don't you put them out on his, on your label? Well, we are, and we're, we're putting, we're working with T-Bone's daughter right now. And, that's great. Um, so all that's, that's, that's coming out. You know, there's, there's all that kind of stuff that goes on at the vault at the warehouse, you know, and, and lots, lots of projects coming up and, and we've got a great, uh, great uh, team at Universal who's like on our side and wants to do all this stuff. They're the ones who kept going, yeah, let's put out this, this concert, this live concert. This is great. When I was going, I don't know, it looks so bad. Why make a video, you know, blah, blah, uh, blah. People like said, it. No. It'll, bring, it'll bring people back. But uh, yeah. so, okay. So in Texas, that's where you, you kind of start learning how to play and you're, you're, you're spent. Now, wh- where does your guitar take you? I mean, do you, do you, do you, commit to it then or do you go to college do you go to do you start a band in texas what happens well i loved playing guitar so i played guitar all the time and when i was in the seventh grade i met a kid who had been taking drum lessons since he was five years old and he could play like gene carupa he was an absolute phenomenal drummer and another kid who was in love with ricky nelson looked like ricky nelson and played guitar and i said we should put a band together so we did and uh, we mimeographed letters. It's 1956 in Dallas. I'm 12 years old in the seventh grade. And I mimeographed a letter and sent it out to every fraternity and sorority. I had an older brother, three years older, and a, a cousin who was older than me. So I was seeing what was going on in college, and they had parties. And every, everybody had live music in Texas back then anyway. Every party you went to, there was a band. Did you know the Winter Brothers? I never met him until later, you know, and uh, we uh, we I was before those guys. I was like 10 years before those guys. I was I had the number one band in Dallas <laughs> and nobody knew how old we were. We were booked. We booked that first band um, for the whole year in three weeks. It was booked for the whole year. Boz was in that band. Boz Gags was in that. Oh, band. you knew him that early on? Yeah. And um, so we put we all went to the same school and it was a really good band. We were very entertaining and we were really good and we knew what we were doing. And that's when I started playing harmonica, because we started off doing instrumentals like Ricky Nelson would do on the Ozzy and Harriet show at the end of the, the dance. Ricky would come up and do a couple of numbers. That's how we started work. And we've been working every Friday and Saturday night since 1956. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And so uh, I started playing and um, I mean, that was a really, really good band. And in Texas, you had to play blues. It was, they wanted to hear, you know, Jimmy Reed and Bill Doggett and Bobby Blubland and little Walter and Muddy Waters. They didn't want to hear Fabian and Annette and the Dick Clark uh, stuff, you know, that was honky tonk. Absolutely. Parts one and two. <laughs> note for note. <laughs> you know, I love that song. It's one of my very favorite songs. In fact, I've been, I've been playing Honky Tonk the whole pandemic. I've been practicing it and playing it. I love that stuff. It's that's great. that's what I love. Yeah, it is. It's great. Well, I'm glad to hear you like that. That's good. Oh, yeah, man. I, I mean, it was one of the first guitar runs I I ever heard and I ever wanted to play because I play a bit. But uh, oh, okay. Well, yeah. um, you need to meet Danny Karen then because Danny's like uh, was Charles Brown's musical director and he's Mr. Honky Tonk on the guitar. Oh, really? yeah. Oh, he's God, the guy. He's 
Yeah, he's yeah. You should talk to him next. Well, it's so interesting, you know, to me that well, let's let's just go further along. So you got Boz playing with you, and then you guys move back up to Chicago, or how does it, you know? Well, um, at at that time we were all just white middle class kids, and uh, we were going to go to college, and we were going to earn a living, and we were going to learn how to take care of ourselves. You know, that was that was the plan. So I went to the University of Wisconsin. Boz was a year behind me. Uh, when I got to the University of Wisconsin, 1961, there were no rock and roll bands there. There were no live rock and roll bands in the local scene. Anyway, so we're in college, and I start this band. I uh, went to Denmark, went to school over there for a semester, and lived over there for a year. Came back and kind of went, you know, I really am a musician. This up until that point, I've, I you know I was still pretending I was going to teach creative writing and you know be a writer, yeah, and uh, a journalist and yeah, blah blah blah. You know, I had all this other stuff I was going to do, but the whole time I was playing guitar. And uh, I went to Chicago. I saw Butterfield's band, and I just went with uh, and, Bloomfield. Uh, no, it was pre-Bloomfield, mm. and uh, it was. I think it was his best band. The best band was pre Bloomfield because it, it didn't have all the lead guitar theatrics and it was more like little Walters. Band. Right. It yeah. Was yeah. Classically put together. It was Elvin and uh, Jerome Arnold and Sammy Lay and, and Paul Butterfield. And they were, they were great. And they just, an article was written about him in time magazine, the blue eyed soul, I think it was called or something like that. And he got a record deal and I went to see him and I was so cocky when I saw him. I went, really? I've been doing this since I was, you know, 12 years old. Hell, I could get a record contract. Yeah. Boing. Light bulb goes off. I go back, you know, to my English class. I talk to my, uh, you know, my counselor, my advisor, and he's telling me that I'm six credits short of graduating this year and they're not going to accept my credits from the University of Copenhagen. And I went, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm going to Chicago. I had this little meeting my mom and dad came to see me and my mom said to me she said stevie what are you gonna do and i gave the answer every parent wants to hear i want to go to chicago and play blues <laughs> yeah if my old man had had a two by four he would have hit me with it and my mother gave me pull opened her purse pulled out a hundred dollar bill and said you're young you don't have any responsibilities here's a hundred bucks you should go right away see if you can make it yeah and i went okay (laughs) yeah and then and then i entered the world of the chicago mafia and a world of crime and drugs and (laughs) blues i loved it i mean chicago was really gritty and it was all happening i got there but you seem like the one thing i noticed steve is like you know when i'm listening to all your music is like you seem like a a pretty well-adjusted guy like i mean (laughs) it it, like (laughs) Like even in the old records, you know, 68, 69, there's something sort of controlled and, and sort of together about you. I like like I don't listen to your stuff and wonder if you're going to live through the song. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I, I, can I use that quote? Sure. That's, a, that's, the, that's the best thing I've heard in a long time. It's like, well, yeah, because, you know, like, I mean, come on, man, you know. I was hanging out with Les Paul and then I see kids who want to have a rock band. I'm yeah. gonna, you know, they didn't even know how to make a record, you know, sure, they didn't sure. know how to do anything. So I was learning really fast and I got to Chicago and it really was, what was great was that's where I became a man and adult. I stopped being a kid playing, 
you know, uh, little Richard tunes at a fraternity party or something. What was the, what was the moment? Like what what made it? What made the shift? Just the you grit know, of the place. It was two o'clock in the morning watching Otis Span and Muddy Waters play in a oh. club that held uh, seventy five people and being able to see them night after night and Howlin' Wolf and uh, uh, you know. Um, junior wells and buddy guy and and james cotton and i became really good friends and he's on uh what's your, you know, he's on the joker right james cotton uh, so were you playing with those guys or just watching them no i was playing with them and and um how did that work how did they, would they just be like hey, i got a kid here wants to come up and no that doesn't work like that and and uh the, the way it worked was i formed a band with barry goldberg yeah and we were in competition if you can believe this with muddy waters and howling wolf and junior wells and buddy guy for the gigs that were in the in the near north side and the south side of chicago and there were like, like three or four nightclubs that had blues yeah and the hoot the hoot and nanny people had become blues people you know and they were all going to the blues clubs and and uh so there was a a pretty hot scene going on and i came into town and was like showing up and I got Wednesday night and Thursday night and Tuesday night and then Monday night and then Saturday night. And so they, they knew who I was. And, yeah. And so the, in Chicago, the way it worked is you played from nine at night till four in the morning. That's what a normal nightclub set in Chicago was. Come on. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It is crazy, but that's that, you know, it's mafia town. That's the way it was. That's when a lot of business was done. But so and you so, got it. You got it. You can't repeat songs for an eight hour shift. Exactly. You got to do uh, an eight hour shift and you're 45 on and 15 minutes off. And, and I loved it. We all loved it. And uh, we were working all the time. And so if we weren't working, we were sitting in that same club watching muddy or howling wolf. And I became, Became really good friends with Howling Wolf. Uh, Muddy Waters and his band were just absolute masters. And when you would, you know, when you're listening to Muddy Waters on Wednesday night, you yeah. know, in February in Chicago and there's yeah. nobody there, man, that was some music, you know. So that was a big growing up. Time. So they were and, just and tight and in the in the pocket. You just like, they were just real, just yeah. so 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 adult. Like there's a whole bunch of things I took away from Chicago. Like oh, little Walter arranged everything. All of this stuff was done was little Walter's thinking. Little Walter was the John Coltrane, Miles Davis of the blues scene. He was a fucking genius. Yeah, and he was my number one artist that I loved the most. And uh, Is that where you I learned how to how, play that harp? Yeah, listening to well, Little Walter? No, I learned to play harp listening to Jimmy Reed. I, oh, yeah. I'd been playing harp before. I, I'd been playing harp with a microphone through a basement, a Fender basement amp, when, you know, in 1957. So I, I, that was before I had really, really heard a Little Walter. So when I got into Little Walter, I was stunned little Walter just became my Bible of music. So there you are in Chicago. So what, what shifts, man, how do you, what, how do you decide? I mean, what do you, what do you do next? When do you, how do you evolve out of the blues? What's the first step? Was well, our mafia manager, of course, uh -huh. we're in Chicago. Yeah. So Barry's got a mafia manager and, uh, all of a sudden, we're going to make a record for Mercury Records. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, so they they 
sign us up. And um, uh, they put us in the studio and they give us uh, three hours on one afternoon and a couple hours the next morning to make our album. Yeah. <laughs> so we yeah. yeah. We got this thing. And Barry had written, um, Barry was a, a great writer and a, a, a great pop tune music guy. And he had written a bunch of pop tunes. So that's what the manager wanted. What happened to, do, to that so- guy? Barry? Yeah. Well, he's in LA. He's done a lot of things with the four tops and he's, uh, oh, okay. you know, like a, an established uh, session guy and master of uh, keyboards in LA and has been for years and years and years. And he was real tight with Bloomfield. They were real good buddies. So we make this record and all of a sudden we're on the Kenny G show in Cleveland. And then we go to New York. This is like right from playing in a nightclub in Chicago. We go to New York and, do hullabaloo with uh, the Supremes and the Four Tops. Which record? Uh, it was, uh, you know, when, I don't even remember what the name of the album was. You know, the Goldberg Miller Blues Band. Uh, and um, we did, you know, a bunch of Jimmy Reed tunes and some of Barry's tunes. And he had written a song called The Mother Song. And that's the one they were promoting. Huh. <laughs> you guys have it? Did, I don't know. Does that even exist anymore? I the, don't think The record? So. Yeah, I I don't I don't think it's you can buy it now. But but so we went so we go to New York and then we we play Hullabaloo and uh, we're on national television with the Supremes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure, yeah, and the Four Tops and and uh, then we get a job in this mafia nightclub in Manhattan called the Phone Booth. Uh huh. And I can tell you the difference between the Chicago mafia. And the New York Mafia, the Chicago Mafia, they all wear kind of shiny suits and chew yeah. gum and have sunglasses on. And in New York, everybody looks like Cesar Romero uh, in a tux. Yeah. <laughs> and it was crazy, man. And we, we played this joint for six weeks. The Young Rascals had been there. Oh. Bob Dylan was coming in and out trying to steal Barry from the band for his band. Uh, the Love and Spoonful were there. You know, all these people were were around all the time and yeah dylan was around and was uh really jive i didn't like dylan at all he was just like uh, real high and uh, bobby newerth was with me and his polka dot shirt on he kept calling barry jerry you know he'd say where's jerry and i was just going get out of here you know but yeah that was that was new york and and we kind of got things going but the record wasn't going to happen nothing was going on so we go back to chicago and the whole scene had just dissipated and was gone. Really? It was just gone. What happened? Everybody went to California. Oh. And all of a sudden, you know, like college got into blues and Muddy started, his record started moving again. Their careers, when I was in Chicago, their careers were over. They had had all their big hits and they were done and they were living back in Chicago and all they were right. working on the, you know, the folk music club, the blues club, wherever they could. Yeah, work. Muddy was like painting the chess studio. Like he was like, they were doing odd jobs here and there. And I guess, what was it? This, the English guys started recording their music and turned everyone on again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's right. And, and, uh, so we go out to California, the psychedelic scene's just starting, it's all happening. And then 
Butterfield's out there first. Yeah. And then I went there and I lived there and we're telling Bill Graham, man, you got to get the James Cotton Ben. You got to get Howling Wolf. You got to get Muddy Waters. You need Junior Wells and Buddy Guy. You got, and Graham had, you know, he was open seven nights a week. He needed bands and he had the scene going. (laughs) And we just started bringing the Chicago guys in. Then they started playing colleges. And, you know, the minute you can make $3,000 a night playing a college instead of $500 a week working for a mafia guy in Chicago, everything changes. Yeah. And the scene, I mean, it literally was just gone. But you were, but everyone was hanging out in the Bay Area. Everybody went to the Bay Area and, and me included. Yeah. I I got the hell out of there too. So, how does that first record? Uh, with the Steve Miller band, how does children of the future happen? Well, we got to San Francisco and basically all the bands there were really amateur bands. I mean, the grateful dead was really an amateur band. The Jefferson starship was a little better. Uh, what about Moby grape? Moby grape came in and that Jerry Miller and those guys, we were part of that scene. The guys who opened up the scene were like folk music guys who went, Hey, let's be rock stars. Let's get rock boots. Let's grow our hair long. Let's get electric guitars. Let's have a rock band. Yeah. And they started all that stuff. And Oh, by the way, everybody take acid. So everybody did. And it became a social phenomena and then they needed to feed it with music. And I showed up going, hi, I'm a band leader. You need some help (laughs) (laughs) and put a band together and just started playing right away. And we played at the Fillmore auditorium more than anybody. We did 120 different uh, gigs there. And I mean, like not, not one nighters, I mean, different, events there so it might be four nights you you don't strike me as a drug guy were you doing the acid oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah of course you know i did i did the acid in in uh, madison yeah i did the real acid not the crap acid on the west coast i did the lysergic 25 lsd 25 from switzerland with sidron yeah (laughs) yeah we were way ahead of that stuff we we had already solved the problems of the world and (laughs) didn't need to take acid ever again we i mean we we went on trips that were like uh oh you know poetry and music and jazz yeah we didn't like you know drop acid and go down and watch pro wrestling right right yeah (laughs) man you know so that so when when I got to San Francisco, I was I felt like I was way ahead of you're ready what to was work going on there, and um, I put my band together and we we started playing and it was like, you know, I guess it was like Paris was in the twenties or something. Everything was there and it was really great for a few years before it it got overwhelmed with the if you're going to San Francisco, put some flowers in your sure, hair song, sure. which brought. 400,000 people to the streets and turned it into a, you know, just a horrible scene. But that was, that was a great, great uh, time. So what happened was all the record companies wanted to sign anybody and everybody who was in San Francisco. And there were 14 record companies that came running into San Francisco and wanted to sign me. So I had a feeding frenzy going on and I had a friend who was a prosecuting attorney who didn't really care about the music business. And I went to him and I said, I need you to represent me. These guys are crooks they're gangsters and here's what I want. And I told him I wanted complete artistic control. I wanted enough money to make five albums with a no cut contract. 
and uh, blah, 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 blah. And everybody laughed at me, but because there was this feeding frenzy going on, we kept playing everybody <laughs> off against each other and I got the contract and it's the same contract I work on today. I couldn't get that contract today if I tried, you know? So it was with so, Capitol records for five records. Yeah. Yeah, which they then changed to seven records and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's so interesting to listen to the old stuff now. When was the last time? Do you ever listen to it? Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, I mean, you know, on Sailor, like, because, like, I, you know, you've got the, you've got some straight up psychedelic stuff and I can hear the time in some of the songs and I can hear you kind of finding your way through that. But then, you know, like, living in the USA is sort of the, the template for the Steve Miller sound and songs that become your biggest hits almost a decade later. It's kind of interesting, right? And yeah. and it strikes me that living in the USA, I mean, were you like, I, I don't know why it hit me because I was trying to figure out what defines your sound, but there's something Mitch Ryder about it. Were you a Mitch Ryder guy? Yeah, I love Mitch Ryder. And, and um, uh, I, I love, you know, blues bands. I liked a tough band. Yeah. I liked a band that kicked ass and was, sure, uh, you know, that, that was, that was good. And, you know, when I was in Madison, like I was a, a freedom writer and I was a member of SNCC and I, I got into all the politics and, you know, I went and demonstrated and got on the bus and rode off to the South. So I had all this political kind of feeling and, uh, you know, I, I wanted my songs to have that, uh, you know, I did, didn't want to just all be candy ass pop music, you know. No, no, it wasn't. Yeah, I'm, but I'm coming from a, a blues world. And and as I was growing up, I, I began to realize that, yeah, man, I was really lucky. I grew up in Texas and Jesus, Les Paul was, boy, I did know T-Bone Walker. I started started really giving me a perspective of what I was doing. And so I was serious about writing and, you know, trying to, speak to social issues. And I think living in the USA was really basically written for the 1968 democratic convention, which it was obvious it was, it was going to turn into what it was going to be. Yeah. But what's interesting is like, you know, on top of all that is that there, you know, your, your production is meticulous and your bands are fucking tight. So, you know, like the sound that you get that makes, you know, cause you can always, I can recognize a Steve Miller song no matter what, just because of your voice, but there's a groove to it and there's a, there's a compression to it. There's a tightness to it. There's, you know, you're not wasting any, 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 any time really. You know, I, I don't know. There's just something about the groove that's very specific to you. And I think it's just because your bands are so goddamn tight. Well, I, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I work really hard at that and watching Les make records, you know, Les's records are great. Yeah. And, and making records is one thing and live performance is another thing. And when you go into the studio, everything changes and you have to learn a whole new way to work and you're, you're creating kind of a fantasy, you know, you're, yeah. you go in, everything's dry and dead and blah, 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 and engineers with glasses and done. And, and, and you're supposed to like create something that's really great when if that's what you wanted to do, you just go down to the club and play and record it there. And so I like the, the idea of producing records and, when I was a kid, I was listening to the modern jazz quartet. I thought they were fantastic. I was yeah. listening to lots and lots of jazz. I loved Ray Charles. I, you know, I loved the the early uh, Stax records. And, yeah. You know, I, I mean, 
I liked it. Like my first record that I made when I made it with Glenn Johns, like we argued all the time because Glenn Johns was like an English kind of pop engineer and yeah. he had lots of echo on everything. And I was going, fuck it, Glenn, goddamn, you know, dry it up, tighten it up, make it sound <laughs> this way, that way, you know? So we were, we were fighting all the time. So for you to, to recognize that in the records is, is really important because we took it really seriously. Well, no, but that's like, that's what defines, you know, the sort of sound because it's all, you know, there, there, there's an edge to it, but there's not, you know, a menace or a rawness or, or, you know, you know, it, it's all very, even, you know, when you're rocking the hardest, it's pretty soothing stuff somehow. And I think that's because of the production. Yeah. It, w I always want my stuff to be musical. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the people that I really appreciate are, uh, are the musicians where you can hear what they're playing rather than a, the 13th floor elevators or, uh, you know, or whoever, you know, that rather than a bunch of kids with their amps turned up to 10, just, you know, wah, and right. screaming and yelling. Right. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm uh, much more impressed by musicality. Sure, man. And you got, you, you had a good rhythm section, man. Those first always, few records. <laughs> thanks man. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always try, I mean, I try and find the best guys I can work with who, who will put up with me, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that we can, we can get together and, and uh, create good work. And I love those tunes. Like I like, uh, I love lucky man, you know, and then, yeah. uh, you know, the, I guess gangster of love is on that, that character is on sailor. That, that was the first time he's mentioned. Right. Yeah. And yeah, then uh, John, Johnny guitar Watson, you know, I mean, uh -huh. he, he was the original, the real gangster. of love. Uh, <laughs> but then like on, um, like, it's so funny, man. If you, if I listen to, uh, uh, brave new world, you know, what's that? The third record. And, you know, you know, I, I listen to like my dark hour and I'm like, ah, there's the lick. Like, you know, you took that lick from that and you processed That's that's why I like an right. eagle. Well, I was I was working on uh, see my dark hour was like a, a real a fluke. I was in London. It was 1969. The Beatles were f finishing up a project and Glenn said, come on, let's go to a Beatles session. I was going to a Beatles session. Are you kidding me? So we went I met McCartney. They were supposed to do a session the next day. Lennon and uh, Ringo didn't show up. George came over. So there was Paul and me and George. We went into the studio and just started playing around guitar. George got bored and left. McCartney jumped on the drums. And I said, let me show you this lick. I got this thing I'm working on, man. And so I started playing and he started playing the drums and boom, we did my dark hour and six hours. We just made it up and wrote it and finished it. And then you and McCartney, that, that lick was something that I had always been, working on and it uh started playing it all the time you know from then till 19 from really 1969 to 1976 man i was like <laughs> growing that lick and working with it until i finally got it right you know yeah 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 you are a guitar player that's i could see that's good <laughs> well yeah it's just sort of like it pops out i'm like oh man that lick had to germinate you know it's like yeah. You didn't want to let that lick go. Other people would have been like, because it's like, it's a specific riff. And, but, you know, and you put it on My Dark Hour, but you weren't going to let it, you, you, it meant more to you than that. That's yeah. funny. And I learned that lesson really from, from McCartney because uh, the little time I spent with him that during those few days we were together, 
you know, I was, I was going, so, you know, tell me, how does it work and everything? But, you know, do you have any regrets or anything? And he said, yeah. He said, I wish I had taken more time with these songs. He said, we wrote all those songs so fast. He said, we, it was like we were going to work. We got there at 10 in the morning. We left at 3.30 in the afternoon and we'd cut three songs, you know, yeah. and then we'd write two more the next night. And he said, I wish I had taken more time with those songs. And I, I did that with Fly Like an Eagle and I did that with Abracadabra mm. you because like- of what he told me. And I right. just kind of went, mm. You know, like there, there's this moment where you're like putting your next album together and it's 11.59 and 30 seconds and you're going to say, okay, that's it. And both times I kind of went, no, wait, take that song off. It's not ready yet. And they went, what are you talking about? You know, because we just spent like, you know, 15 days mixing it and yeah, working yeah, on it. And yeah, yeah. $12,000 recording it and flying right. people in or whatever. And it's, what are you talking about? I said, it's just not ready. Take it off, mm. you know. And uh, uh, both times it paid off very well. <laughs> Glad I followed that advice. Well, so the first, like the first real hit you had was living in the USA. Well, living in the USA was was is it's kind of funny. It it took off and then it disappeared, and then a couple of years later, it sold a hundred thousand copies in like four days in Philadelphia around the 4th of July. Some D this was still in the days when DJs would go, Hey, here's a little, let's spin a little Steve right. Miller living yeah. in the USA. So it went up and went down, but it never became a real hit. So I didn't, I never had a real bona fide. You can't fuck with me, take it away from me or do anything kind of hit until the Joker. And right. The Joker was like what we call when things go viral. Now it, it really wasn't my record company promoting me or working me it, that song just came out and just went. Wah, People locked know? in. It's so funny yeah. leading up to that. Though, I, I do have to, to compliment you on, I think your version of, and I've heard several versions of mother with children from uh, your saving grace, which, and I love that album and that's that and your, your cover. That's great. You know, we we just uh, a couple of years ago, man, we were in the studio just fooling around and we did a, a new version of it that, that we're not releasing just because there's no re- reason to release it. That's really great. I, I've always loved that song. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. I love it. And then so the Joker, I, I mean, I remember that. I didn't realize it was 73. So, yeah, because that song is like it's just part of all of our brains. And uh, you know what I mean? I mean, that song is just there, but I thought it was a little later. So that, so that lit you up, huh? Yeah, that, that I was at the end of my career. Uh, Capitol Records was not very interested in me. They had just spent $3 million in signing a new English group called Flash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those guys, they're amazing. And, Where? <laughs> and the last, last conversation I had with the guys at Capitol Records the Joker was the first album I produced myself. I kicked Sidron out of the studio. I kicked everybody out of the studio and just said, all right, you know, there's no money. There's no, I'm, this is it. I got to make this record. And this is my last record. Probably is on Capitol. And yeah. And so I told the guys at Capitol, some kid at the record company said, Hey, you know, I really like that Joker song, you know? And I said to him, listen, man, I don't care about singles anymore. I said, here's a list. These are the 60 cities I'm going to starting tomorrow night in Florida. 
And I want you to just have my albums in those cities. Can you do that? Can you just do that much? You know, can you actually have product available? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I hated those guys. I was so mad at them because they were, you know, they didn't give a shit. They didn't pay. They didn't. They didn't give a shit. They didn't know how to do anything. They were just high on cocaine and running around and bumping their heads into the wall and going to parties and shit and junk and stuff, you know? So I was seriously working, you know, and I didn't like that. So took off and went and did the 60 cities and, and got back to San Francisco and the Joker was being played twice an hour, 24 hours a day on every radio station in the United States that played music. And when I was going to do my last gig in, in Oakland at the Fox theater, right. Yeah. We were still playing 2000 seat rooms. I went on the way over I was listening to the radio and the Joker was on four of the five channels in, in the Bay area. And I was pissed off because it wasn't on the fifth one, you know, <laughs> at the same time, you yeah. know, it was like crazy. Yeah. Then I came down to LA and, you know, I was the greatest guy in the world and whatever I wanted to do is just great. And blah, 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 blah. How so much did that thing sell that song? It, you know, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's so mixed up in the greatest hits and all these other things. It sold millions and millions and millions and millions of copies. You, I mean, you, air, you're, you're probably, is nuts. you're still making money on that song right now. As we're talking, you're making a few. As, <laughs> as we're speaking, the Joker's being played somewhere in Fiji. There's a Fijian band playing the Joker, and then they're going to do Space Cowboy. Well, you get those. You get those fucking. You, you get those satellite residuals. You get those sound exchange checks. Those things still process through. They do, but uh, you know, it's oh man, it's so different. I mean, the '90s were the last of that. You know, sure, where man. where the ASCAP was, money. Yeah, I mean. The it, it's the only money we really make now is when we tour, and you know that's that's the same for for everybody unless you're just the world's biggest superstar and blah 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 and and so putting out records is really a completely different kind of game. It used to be a really fun game, you know, trying to make hits and trying to get on top of the charts and beat the Beatles or whoever it was. You know, yeah. there's all that stuff going on. You know. For, for producers of records and that's what i was i was producing myself and and working on on that side of the game too what, what, which i really loved what was the big change you made when you took over i mean what what was the difference in your approach to production with uh the joker that that changed the the sort of sound into what became your vision was it just putting the vocals up front more or? uh you know it, it was the way it was mixed. Yeah. It was the way the recording sessions were done. I, I, uh, before every, every making every album was always such a big deal and it cost so much money and you had so many people involved in it. And, and it was like, uh, you had a lot of people telling you what to do. And, and I was always arguing with people all the time. Ben and I used to argue all the time about the records we worked on and Glenn Johns and I used to just have, you know, knock down, drag out four o'clock in the morning kind of fights about it. And finally I got rid of all those people. Like every time I go in to make an album, like the, the producers, the engineer would be the producer's pal, not my pal. Yeah. You know, that, you know, that it was always like that. And I just got rid of it, got rid of them all. And I picked my own engineer. I brought the band in and cut the tracks in two days and then spent, you know, 15 days overdubbing and mixing and editing and cutting and, 
you know, rewriting a paragraph here and there and, you know, dusting it off. And that was done. It's interesting because Glenn Johns is like a massive producer. Oh, yeah. Glenn is he was like um, a rock star when we first started working with him. He'd already done the Stones and the the Who and and uh, he it's kind of funny, you know, like a lot of people love the way he records and makes records and a lot of people don't. And the Eagles and I both have the same kind of like, nah, we're out of here kind of feeling. I learned a lot from Glenn. He taught me a lot about making records. Yeah. Um, I made my first album in England at, at Olympic Studios. That's where I got Children of the Future. So I started I started at Capitol and went down there and did my first session. And my second session and the engineering staff walked out at two in the morning. They just said, fuck this. And they left. And so I was going to tear up my contract with capital. And I called my producer and said, Hey, you can have the money back. I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else. And he said, no, 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 no. And part of my, my, that deal I told you about, I had was that I could produce my own records and I could go anywhere I wanted to record. I didn't have to work at Capitol records. Right. Usually record companies made you rent their studio. You, you know, you became a client of theirs as well, you know? And, and so we went to London to Olympic studios and Glenn was an engineer. We got him to be our engineer. Wow. That's how I started. And we were overdubbing and stuff and uh, the, so I, I kind of went to school in the English, the school of English, making English pop records. Yeah, you know, that, that makes sense, man. That makes yeah. sense in terms of uh, of the sound. So then like it yeah. took three years for you to put together fly like an Eagle. Why? Cause you're on the road with the Joker or what? Yeah. I mean, I got back from the Joker and uh, I've been on the road for 11 years and I've been fighting for 11 years. And uh, I went into the studio at Capitol records. They were just like more right in the studio. Come back, come back. And I went, I went in and um, I remember it was about two o'clock in the afternoon. And I just sort of strummed my guitar and looked at the guy and said, you know, I got nothing to say, nothing to do. I'm out of here. You know, I'm, I'm just exhausted. Yeah. So cut everything off and um, uh, went uh, to San Francisco and found a, had a check for $380,000 in my mailbox and bought a house <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with the junk mail, man. I was like, you know, it was like that. Fat, and I opened up and went, and that's when I went, I've got a hit. Shit, this is great. So I bought a house. I bought a 3M eight track tape recorder and set it up in the living room. And uh, I just moved there and lived there by myself and, We're at Bay and Area? sort of, yeah, in Novato, yeah, you know, out, outside of of uh, the city, and um, found a really cool old house in the woods and and set it up and and uh, just sat there and got real bored and got real used to that and just not going out and partying and just working, yeah, and started working. And I wrote, I don't know, 25 songs, probably wrote 50 songs throughout half of them and ended up with 25 songs or so. And, and, uh, called up Gary Malibur, great drummer, got Lonnie Turner, the bass player and said, we're going to go in and cut the basic tracks just as a trio. I don't want any, you know, the less people there are, the more I can control what's going on. We went in and cut all the tracks for fly like an Eagle and book of dreams and all those hits as a trio Both records. Yeah, cut them in eleven days. Cut everything. Oh no! And shit. We we're doing two. We we're doing two tracks a day. Right. And uh, we we got 
you know, and then they all took off, went and did what they did. And then I went back to my house and just thought about my tracks. I had them on a, I had an eight track tape recorder and I'd cut them 16 track and I mixed it down to a stereo mix. I had a sync tone. So that left me five open tracks. So I had a sync tone, a stereo mix of the, the rhythm tracks and five open tracks. And, and I just engineered everything myself. And I sang all the parts myself and I played all the guitar parts myself. And I did it over and over and over and over until I was really happy with what I had or it was the way I wanted it. Yeah. Wiped the tape a hundred times, you know, and started again. And it was really, the limitations were great. Five tracks, you know, and, and that's what you did that all. That's what the record is. Yeah. And then we took it back to the studio, synced it up to the 16 track. Yeah. So we now had like eight tracks of drums and, you know, whatever. Sure. And, and just took my stuff that I recorded in my living room uh, with a sure level lock and a electro voice microphone. And, you know, I was done. Wow. And mixed the album in it in 17 hours. You know, we just sat down and mixed it and we did stereo mix. We did a quad mix and we did the singles mixes all in one session. Quad mix, 1976. Quad mix. Yeah, Yeah, baby. (laughs) That's amazing, man. I did, you know, I just noticed something. And this is the first time I noticed it. You're playing a left handed strat, right handed on the cover. Yeah. So. Reason being, I had, um, you know, I, I I first saw Jimi Hendrix at uh, the uh, Montreux Festival. Uh, that I mean, the Monterey Festival. Did you Monterey know him? Pop well, yeah, I met him there. Yeah, that was so cool. He looked like Eartha Kitt with a guitar. Uh-huh. <laughs> he just walked around the corner, and I went Eartha Kitt with a guitar, uh-huh. and you know, <laughs> and we started How do you talking. Take that? <laughs> he was. He was like very shy and real. I mean, he was as a, a very humble, sweet guy. And we became friends. And he used to let me sit on the stage when he played. So I was probably sitting four feet away from him, you know, at the corner of the stage, just out of the range of his monitor where he would be playing. Yeah. During those all those Winterland shows. And what I noticed was that. I mean, he, he was such a great guitar player, so I was studying how he played. I didn't want to play his exact stuff, but his techniques and stuff. And what he could do was he could pick up a Strat like this, right? Yeah. And because it was upside down, the vibrato bar was this way, so he could hold it with his thumb and he could go, and, and he was do that. That's how he was doing a lot of those. Just squeezing it. Yeah. With his hand, like he wasn't doing this. Right, he was right. doing this. Right. And to do that, you had to have an upside down guitar. Oh, so it was mostly for the vibrato effect. Isn't, isn't the intonation a little weird too, because of the way the pickups are aligned? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is and it isn't. So I went, I went to New York, went to Manny's and Jimmy had ordered these two uh, left-handed strats. And which I thought was really odd. And, and he had just died and, and, uh, they said, do you want them? And I said, yeah, I do, because they were left-handed. So I took them. Then I sent them to Nashville, had everything flipped so I could play. And then the hardest part was learning to turn the volume off when you wanted to turn the volume up. Many times I would step out to take a solo and turn my guitar off. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and and that that particular guitar, I still have the white one. The black one got stolen, but the the white one I still have, and it's a great, great sounding Stratocaster. And I never changed the pickups. I didn't, you know, move them around or anything, and uh, you know, cut some great records with that. And that's why I did it. I mean, yeah, I thought, yeah, controls up here and everything. I've since made strats that have the you know regular controls, but they're you know. I've made left-handed guitars, but made sure that the controls worked like you right. Mean you had them made controls. for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, what I, was I, it? so like? I'm watching that '77 thing, the thing that you're you know you're releasing. It's like what's with all those the big the Ibanezes. Well, it's, you know it's it's kind of cool. What you guys are playing matching Ibanez, and the other dude has a fucking music man. I mean, it's like it was like the, like a, 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 a whole onslaught of unhip instruments. <laughs> right and 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 what was what was going on yeah. those were our those guitars we had are actually great okay. they sound great yeah. so no i'm not uh, saying they didn't sound good but like now but, you know everybody yeah, i know what you're saying yeah, yeah but here was the thing like fender told me to go fuck myself gibson wouldn't pick up the phone i you know i was trying to work with guitar makers and stuff yeah. and and the only there was uh the only company that was interested was uh Ibanez, there was a guy named Jeff Hasselberger, who's a great, great guitar guy. And he came to me, he said, we'll make you anything you want, man. What do you want? And I started going, well, I want one of these. I want one of those. I want one of those. Yeah, that's great. Like, can I get one with the tree of life? And, you know, yeah. Bob Weir did it. Bob always got the fancy guitars. Like when I see Bob play his Ibanez, it's got more inlay than yeah, yeah, 10 yeah. guitars. You know, <laughs> Bobby, right? So Bobby and I were working with Hasselberger and developing these guitars and they'd make us any kind of pickups we wanted. And they make, you know, I had them, they were making me eight string basses and yeah, yeah. all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and they were all great instruments. Sure, and and uh, they were the only, they were the only people that even, you know, had any interest in me as an artist at all. <laughs> really? Well, that's interesting. The Ibanez deal and you guys, and Bob Weir too, Bob Weir, like uh boy, he's a, he's a troubadour. You guys buddies. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I spent a lot of time with Bob. What I like best, I've, I've put backup bands behind Bob, you know, for private gigs and parties and stuff like that. And I love to do that. And I get him there and get him singing. And, um, he's, he really, he's a really a great singer, you know, and I've, I've put some really great bands together. How, did, how is that your job? Stuff. Well, we kind of, uh, hang out in the, you know, the Bay area. And there's like, par it's a, like at parties. Like oh, we're yeah. having a party, man, put, put a band together oh, for okay. this. And you guys come over and you know, it, the party's for you and us and everybody. It's picking it's up more that, like that tech money, those $250,000 garden gigs. Uh, no, but those gigs are nuts. Yeah. You know, I, I, I did one of those gigs with, uh, wait a minute, let me, let me think Billy Gibbons. Oh yeah. Christine McVie, Mick Fleetwood, and then like all the best LA backup players. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was a great fucking gig. It was for some guys in Texas, of course. Uh-huh. Man, yeah. uh, Fleetwood can fucking swing, huh? Yeah, he's great. I i he and I have been pals from the Fillmore days. And uh uh I loved that the Fleetwood Mac when they first showed up. Did they you were, know Peter? they were the first uh, I, I knew Peter. I played with Peter. Uh, I, um, 
Um, most of the time that I spent with him was later, and it was really difficult. Because he was out there? He was out there in a kind of way that made you want to say, quit fucking around and play it. Yeah, yeah. Come on, God damn it. What do you think it We're was? We're not going to put up with that bullshit. He, he, he would just drive people crazy. I don't know what it was. There was just something about him. He's such a great guitar player. Oh. You know, and it was I think he was hard on himself. Yeah, and I, but I think he had problems. I mean, the last time I played with him, he was playing um, with, uh, what was that? Are your eggs done? No, it's a computer, one of them. I got it. It was a, someone texted me. Go ahead. Uh, he, we did, he, <laughs> yeah, John and, Mayall. And my eggs are done, thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. John Mayall, <laughs> John Mayall was playing in uh, the Fillmore. Yeah. And Peter Green was playing at the Fillmore with his own band. And Mayo invited me over to come over and play. And, you know, it was just a great, this was like, you know, 19, I don't know, 97 or eight or something, or, oh, or so, maybe later. So it's fat old Peter Green. Yeah. 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 yeah right. And um, it was, you know, really a great gig, but, and Peter was there and Peter wanted to come and play with us. And we were trying to talk him into playing with us. So he shows up with a band of guys who like, you know, they all look like eighties rock stars, old middle-aged eighties rock stars with dyed black hair and, you know, guitars that look like axes. And they come out and play like 45 minutes of just absolute bullshit. And then Peter green came out and played like two songs with them. Didn't play any of his good shit and then left the stage. Yeah. And you know, Sooner or later, somebody has to behind the stage say, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, and, and nobody would do that. You know, everybody was afraid to do that. And and uh, I just, yeah, eh, you know, I, I didn't have time to screw around with whatever happened to him. I don't know what it was. And I wasn't around him that much. I just know that I love his records. Man, no one can move through between that major and minor like him, man. It's like, no, man, wow. he's the best. He's just really a wonderful one-off great guitarist. Yeah. Soul, it's huge, you know, and. Just broke it. Something broke. Something yeah, broke yeah. inside him. There are a lot of fragile people trying to do this, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I was saying about you. You know, you never struck me like, you know, like you were going to die mid-song. And you always like, I don't know, man, there's a buoyancy to the whole trip. And that Fly Like an Eagle record, that's a, that that took care of you for life, huh? Well, it, it established me and gave me uh, the success I needed to be able to go and grow for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that, had, you know, you just the kept hardest going. thing is to follow up a big hit with a big hit and then follow up that second big hit with a third big hit and then a fourth big hit and then a fifth big hit. There are three big hits on that record. Yeah. I don't know what, what they are. Rocking me, take the money and run. Yeah, fly yeah. like an eagle. Right. That's it. Yeah. Wild mountain honey. And I mean, a lot of them have turned out to be hits. The, the thing that was weird about this was at that time we wanted, we wanted to keep putting out singles off the record and Capitol Records said it'd really press our credibility with radio. We're not going to put any more singles. out. What? After which we went, we're selling, you know, a hundred thousand copies a week. What is wrong with you? I mean, it was crazy. The arguments we had with them. 
They don't. I don't know why. It's crazy. And then the next one, which you basically wrote all those songs at the same time: Jet Airliner, Swing Town, Jungle Love. From uh, well, Paul Pina wrote Jet Airliner. I just rearranged it and oh. you know shuffled the lyrics around a little bit. But that was a Paul Pina tune. Book of Dreams yeah. and and Fly Like an Eagle were sort of done within the same period of time. Yeah. Wild man, big records, dude. Yeah, well, I learned that from the Eagles, too. And I, I mean, the Eagles, probably from the Eagles as well, but from the Beatles, because when I met the Beatles, they had 40 songs in the can. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. They, they had hit after hit after hit after hit. And, and what, what happens when you get ahead of it instead of like, yeah, we just had the biggest hit of our lives and we're all going to go get high and fucked up for 18 months. And then we're going to come back and go to work. Yeah. You know, that's the wrong way. They were able to just, their timing was just bullet fast, just yeah, as yeah, fast as yeah. they needed to have another one. They had it. And that's what I, I tried to do with fly like an Eagle and book of dreams was they were both in the can before I'd left to go on the road with fly like an eagle oh it's amazing man and then you know you you kind you knocked out a few couple a couple of hits more here and there but it seems like you, you just kept, kept making good records yeah i tried try to make good records i just sort of lost my finger on the pulse of pop music and grew up you know got older but it's interesting know? to me is that like hearing your blues records the last couple records where you're going back to it you know, doing those Jimmy Vaughn songs, Jimmy Reed songs, stuff like yeah. I, it always like is 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 beautiful to me when when guys who have the passion for that stuff and you realize at some point that like any idiot can play the blues, right? So it's just the nature of the music. It's it's the the great thing about it and also the horrible thing about it is that right. a, a bar band could do a pretty good job, <laughs> you know with a blues yeah. tune so it's dangerous that bar band level you it know? is yeah. oh yeah <laughs> but like what makes a person you know have a voice and and sound different with that music and like when the stones put out that record a couple of years ago blue and lonesome that was fucking unbelievable to yeah. listen to that that this is yeah. that, that could have been the the song list of their first album ever so now they're coming back to it what 50 years later and it sounds yeah. Exactly like the Rolling Stones. No, those old blues songs, and you're coming back to these old blues songs, and it's like exactly Steve Miller coming back around to the music you love, to the music that speaks to you the most, and singing it with thoroughly as your own guy, and making it your own in yeah. a way that you couldn't have done at the beginning. No, that's that's right. That's astute. I mean, and that's kind of what happens, you know. Like my goal, really, from the time I was five years old and saw Les Paul, was to be a musician. Yeah. I didn't want to be celebrity or a rock star in fact i didn't even know what that was when i was a kid because that didn't you know the successful rock and roll people were like fabian right you know sure. they, yeah they were like people who made surf movies and you know and, uh, uh, but, and, and dion's doing blues now has been doing it for over a decade yeah dion's great yeah you know and and uh, i always loved dion seeing like like run around sue and that stuff like i would watch dion on the dick and the whatever that dick clark tv yeah, show yeah. american bandstand i'd watch those guys yeah i love doo-wop stuff i always loved anything with soul that was good and if it was like total utter pop crap you know like how much is that dog well, yeah. in the window right you know yeah. i just kind of go you know who cares buzz. yeah <laughs> and and so it, it i don't if anybody had soul i always dug it yeah you know and i, sure, I love the doo-wop records and i loved all the r&b stuff and i loved dion and the belmonts and you know uh 
a lot of those those groups. So and they were all, you know, the doo-wop stuff was all vocals too. And and I'm all about the vocals. I love vocal harmonies. That's when you make what I call pop records, you want to have hooks and vocal harmonies. Yeah, sure. You know, we want to sing along with it while we're driving to Arizona. Man. Yeah, man. So you but you like going back to the blues. Oh. All the time into jazz, yeah. jazz and blues, jazz and blues. And I'm working at Jazz at Lincoln Center now on uh, developing the blues pedagogy for them. Really? I, I like that, that, that. I know that guy over there. I talked to Winton. Uh, Winton's a genius. He's great, dude. I love working for Winton. Winton collared me and asked me to come help him do that. And I've been doing that for six years. I do a series of shows every December at Jazz at Lincoln Center at, at Rose Theater and uh, you know, I did it. I brought Charlie Muscle White and Jimmy Vaughn in, and then I get to have a uh, jazz at Lincoln Center horn section and rhythm section. And oh, it's great. You know, uh, the the players are so great, and I've met so many great players. I've moved to New York, so I moved about uh, eight years ago. You're in New York right now? Years ago. Yeah. We're upstate. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm out of the city right now. I'm in the Hudson Valley. Oh, nice, man. Yeah, I know guys up there. I'm I'm like, you know, avoiding the pandemic. I've been here for 15 months, you know, looking at beautiful rolling hills and stuff. And I'd, I'd give anything to just get back into some of those dives. Sure, man. <laughs> and I've, I've learned so much. It's been such a great thing for me. And my playing, man, the thing that's doing to my personal playing and my personal musical growth. That's great, man. You seem really engaged and fucking in it. That's oh, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, it's phenomenal. I mean, being in, I'm really glad I moved to New York and got, got out. Of, I was living in Idaho and there was nothing to do there except ride bicycles, run, no. ski, train, stay in, and go buy sports equipment, you yeah. know, and there was no, nothing <laughs> else there, you know. <laughs> And, uh, Except for uh, everything else, you mean there was no yeah, no music, yeah. man. It wasn't no music. There's no culture, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the culture there was it was all bar bands, and uh, and so I just uh, you know uh, said to Janice, I want to move to New York, and she's a New Yorker, so she said, yeah, let's go. So we moved, and uh, it was like jumping off a cliff, man. When I first got here, I'd never really lived in a in the gritty city, you yeah, know. I'd yeah. been living out out on you know, in, with mountains and stuff. And I don't know, the first year I was kind of like afraid to go outside at night, you know, and I don't want to go for a walk in the park. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, it was rough, but you know, you get used to it. Now I'm turning into a New Yorker, you know, it's in the, the, uh, the quality of musicianship and people I've met and just the intelligence and the different people. And I got another gig at, at uh, the Metropolitan Museum in the musical instrument department working on that. And we've done those big guitar shows that you saw, you know, the play it loud and uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the arch top guitar show and the Martin guitar show and everything. So, so I got two, two anchors right in the culture of the city just right away when I showed up in town, just by luck, just walked through the door and they said, Hey, why don't you do this? And I went, okay. <laughs> well, man, well, I'm happy for you, man. You sound great. And it was an honor talking to you. And, I'm, and I, and I hope people enjoy the little movie and, and always, uh, they, I know that <laughs> they love the music, but it's great to hear you. You're doing so many things and I, and I take care of yourself, man. Mark, thanks, man. I, I love your show. I love what you're doing. And, and I, it's an honor to be, uh, have a little conversation with you. Thanks for, for listening and uh, for all the hard prep work you did. Oh, it's great. It, it was great, man. Take it easy, Steve. All right. I'll see you around the block, man. Bye-bye. That was Steve Miller. 
As I said earlier, Steve Miller Band Live, Breaking Ground, the concert album from August 3rd, 1977, comes out this Friday, May 14th. And that video we talked about, the live concert film featuring the full performance in his red suspenders with his Ibanez guitars, is available to stream on the Coda Collection on Amazon Prime Video. Now I will play guitar like usual. Fonda. Cat angels everywhere.